0: I um, incurred or had a disability at the age of 21. I had a benign spinal tumour. I had no exposure to disability in my younger years and disability meant sit in a corner and wait to die. There's not a lot else to do. I had a a sporting um, background, um, quite extensive in swimming, nothing international Um, and I got back involved in swimming for rehabilitation. Um, got back in with my old swim coach who, you know, I remember he, I asked him to, to get me back involved in sport and he said, I've never coached anyone that sinks from the waist down and he said, let's see how we get on. And so I um, teamed up with John Beaumont again and um, we started a, a career over time that took me to a Paralympic Games. Um, and I thought that was the, you know, the, the pinnacle and the highlight of what would happen in my life. Um, only to find that we were better things that, that come from that. It's a wonderful environment to be in, and it was really about, you know, how can I be a part of helping others experience what I experienced?
1: Welcome to Generations of Change. I'm Anya kelly Costello, a young blind journalist and advocate known for my delight in asking endless questions. I mainly grew up in the 2000s, And I vividly remember the camaraderie of being at camps with other blind kids and teens. In the real world at school, I was surrounded by sighted people. I was a good student, but I remember the shame I felt when a teacher asked me why I was sitting alone at lunch, and the frustration of having to fight to be in the jazz band just because I couldn't see. While at uni, I stumbled into a role advocating for accessibility law, Suddenly, it was my job to connect with and empower other disabled people to be part of a call for change, and I had to find the courage to build relationships with a whole lot of virtual strangers. That job would end up bringing me into community and solidarity with students, writers, academics, business people, and advocates of all ages. Disability was our shared experience, and together we would champion change. Our efforts built on decades of leadership from disabled people. But how was it growing up disabled 40 or 50 years ago, or acquiring disability as an adult? How has Aotearoa changed? How has it not? What unplanned moments would shape the lives of the visionary disabled people who dedicated themselves to making inclusion the norm? Join me for one of seven conversations where both of us get to find out.
2: Hi, Jane. It's really lovely to have you here today.
0: Yeah, thanks, Anya. Um, great to be here.
2: Tell me a little bit about like, where you grew up, where you're from, and um, did you. You mentioned that your perception of disability when you, know, you first ended up acquiring an impairment was, was really quite negative, but was that partly because perhaps you didn't see that many disabled people around you growing up?
0: I grew up in Hawke's Bay. You know, it's not exactly a small rural town. Actually now I say that, I had a cousin that lost a leg in a motorbike accident, Um, you know that was the exposure and I I think disability then was probably more hidden, you know, Um, the cousin of mine, you know, disguised it really well, um, but it just, I guess my environment, it just wasn't around me so I didn't have any awareness of it and so that thought of, you know, life's over, is that because of not having exposure and being aware of opportunities, and you could actually make, you know, I've had a better life because of this, I believe, um, than if it hadn't happened. Okay. But at the time, you, you make your judgments and assessment on the people around you and what you see and what they can do and what you experience.
2: Yeah, and maybe, you know, the way that you've sort of internalised expectations of them because that's how everybody else has as well so it's almost like at you know when you were growing up so would that have been kind of 60s 70s time?
0: uh yeah 70s 70s yeah.
2: that that people would have you know when you say your cousin disguised um their impairment very well that would have almost been an expectation right is that the way of fitting in is disguising it, is hiding it, is trying to sort of assimilate. Mm,
0: Yeah, and I think also uh, coming from a, you know, able-bodied world as such, um, and and just the experience that you get. You know, I remember I had two operations. The first one was a little bit of a a disaster and exploratory. Um, And I was in hospital for a while in Wellington, and um, I said to my occupational therapist, you know, on board, um, maybe I could do some study. And we went to the local polytech and I remember the time they took me in a hospital wheelchair um, and the, the, the lecturer, I guess it is, um, aimed all the questions at my occupational therapist. It was like, you know, and I can't speak for myself either. Mm. And, and I think it's experiences like that, that, you know, helps, you know, you try to disguise or remove, you know, what you are. You know, for the wrong reasons.
2: Yeah, and particularly like in your case, because you were non-disabled before, you wouldn't have been treated like that before, right? No, you know, so.
0: in the past you were judged on what you can do with a disability. All of a sudden, you're judged on what people think you can't do, and it, and it does change. And, and sport's been a, a fantastic mechanism, not just for me, but you know, for all of New Zealand and all of the world and showcasing just what is possible and it's helping change perceptions and attitudes of people. You know, I was fortunate enough to lead the New Zealand Paralympic team to the Beijing Paralympic Games, uh, then to lead the, the team to the London Paralympic Games, and uh, not long after that, uh, the Paralympics New Zealand board um, were thinking about whether we should try and nominate someone to the international governing body. Um, and so we, we had a, a good go at being elected onto the International Paralympic Governing Board. And I was elected, as I look back now, it's sort of seeing me take this journey from a, a New Zealand domestic sort of view on um, creating opportunity for people with disabilities and, and sporting excellence um, to now taking a world view.
2: So, in your case, swimming, was that something that gave you more confidence then as well? Um.
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, finding out that there was actually an event for for people like me um, to compete, in, and not only just in our own country, but in the world. You know, we, disability is a minority group, but it's a very large minority group. And so I did get to, to meet and know a lot of other people around the country, um, and within my own town, um, that had disabilities of, of different forms. and. You, know, you learn from each other as to what they experience and, and how they achieve things in their lives and you, know, you just find different tips and tricks to, you know, to get by and get by better than you did the week before.
2: Life hacks as we say now, <laughs> yep. Were you working at the time?
0: Uh, at the time I was working, I was working in the National Bank um, and I, you know, I had an incredibly supportive employer. But I think too, you know, there, there was, I had a lot of time off work and I think there was a you know, limited understanding of you know, how do we actually cater for someone in the workforce with a disability. Um, and then a little bit later on, once you know, I, had, I was involved in swimming at, a, at an international level um, and went for a role at another organisation, and um, there was no, obviously no disclosure on my CV that you know, you know, I had a disability. Um, and the, the manager, he only told me many years later the difficulty that he faced in his own decisioning of how do I, how do I employ this guy who's got a disability. It was in a bank, you know, what would customers think? Um, and we joke about it. Um, and as I say to them now, I say, well, you know, I need less office furniture, I'll bring my own chair. You know, it's a bank. I'm sitting behind a desk, you know, it's no different. Um, but in me being open and exposing to other people, you know, just, you know, the, the humorous side of these things and let's find a way is helping also educate others. And, and we see organisations now have made huge leaps forward. And you know accommodating people with disabilities you know because their customers have disabilities
2: yeah it's an interesting one right because in some ways we've come a long way but in other senses like um i know a lot of disabled people and i might have been the same myself had i not done so much work in the disability space that if you're you know if your impairment or disability is not relevant to your your job as you did without writing on, on your cv we may feel that um there's a higher chance that we will be discriminated against even if subconsciously, if we do disclose that. So there's still still some of that going on as well, I think. There
0: is, you know, I'm, I'm in a large bank, an ANZ bank, um, and I think we've got really good policies around catering for people with disabilities in the organisation and to customers. Um, but we still see, you know, well, well we, and we genuinely want our staff engagement surveys for people to say, and there's lots of different disabilities. We want them to be comfortable disclosing that they have it because if we know, we can help if they need help. Um, But we still see it in people that we recruit that don't want to disclose it because there is, what's a feeling and it's a reality, I get that. Um, that's they often don't get to interview. So it's I see it similar to you know what we're trying to do from a gender balance perspective with, with females and many things. You know it's I hate the concept of a quota, but to force a change we need a quota. Um, and so when we're recruiting and we know there's people with disabilities or we're working with disability groups, we will bring them straight to interview. Know, shortcut some of that process that yep. people's unconscious bias takes them out of the shortlist process mm. um, but you've got to force that through to to mainstream it
2: yeah so in the bank then have you in in your role have you been able to sort of influence the direction of the you know inclusive hiring processes there
0: I'd like to think so um, I'm in a contact center and in a contact centre, you deal with computers, you read screens, you deal with customers over a phone. Um, we put out a, a challenge of, we wanted to recruit two visually impaired people. And in the, in the first response is, how on earth are we going to do that? They have to read stuff off a computer. And so I led in gently and, and we, our first person had some, you know, had visual impairment, but not you know, complete loss of sight. Um, and as you know, you know, there's mechanisms that we can use and that worked well, and, I, and we got that established. And then I said, righty now we're gonna get someone that c- can't see at all. Um, but the challenge was equally as great. Yeah. Um, and it works perfectly well.
2: Totally. And I just wanted to go back quickly as well to, um, when you first got your impairment and you said that your employer, the National Bank was really supportive, what did they do well? Because I feel like sometimes we don't talk about that as much. But what was really good um,
0: at that point. Yeah, I think the things at the time were, there was a lot of time off initially and there was just no questions asked about that. And you know, fortunate, it was a large employer and we can absorb that sort of thing. Um, so great policies around you know, those, those illness situations. But I, I think of the times where I'd, you know, I had real pressure on my feet and I'd, you know, I'd come to work in my slippers, for example, um, and, and people just understood. If you're, if you're working closely with people, they still knew me as who I was the month before. You know, I just I had some you know movement you know, issues, and you know, I couldn't walk the same way that I used to walk beforehand. Mm. Um, and they also supported um, when I was in hospital um, to be able to come into another location. And so they arranged for me to come into a branch that was closer to the hospital, mm. um, just on the days I wanted and for the hours I wanted.
2: I think a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of what makes a good employer is being able to be flexible, right? And being able to just have a conversation with someone and and work out work out solutions and be creative as well.
0: Yeah, it's true. And you know, you think of, you know, current day, you know, we, we have this, this view that's, you know, the the hours are nine till five. Well, you know, for some of our staff and it's not just with a disability, but if I use that as an example, you know, getting up and getting organised in the morning might be a little bit more of a challenge for them. Mm. But they might not need an hour for lunch or they might want to work longer. How do we make that happen? Mm. Um, and, and just being asked and being aware that, you know, just because that was the, the believed, known standard um, s- doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Um, and they're probably going to be a better employ- employee because of the accommodations you can make.
2: Mm. Moving towards the, the sporting side of things and advocacy, um, can you remember how you kind of started making the decision of also taking on other roles to help other people do that?
0: Yeah, I, like I, I don't see myself as a, you know, you know activist advocate, um, you know, what, what, you know, not specifically. I think what I experienced out of sport um, and the impact that it had on me, you know going from that that deep, dark place of you know life's over to top a world, um, to realizing of, actually, how do we do that for more, more people? Um, and the Paralympic Games and the the Paralympic family that we refer to is is quite infectious. Um, and you know it's a wonderful environment to be in and it was really about, you know, how can I be a part of helping others experience what I experienced?
2: Yep, and realising that empowering disabled people to feel more confident in themselves as well. Um, you know, I think we can we could talk about how advocacy is viewed because I think it can be viewed quite narrowly sometimes. Um, but that you know, this work is also so important and and having that sense of you know being able to be okay with being disabled and not having to hide that and being like yeah you know you can do so much and do things differently and that that's you know equally valid um having you know having those opportunities yeah absolutely um, do you want to talk about um how was a little bit of your, your role being chef de mission and what, what you did sort of the preparation for that, what did that involve?
0: Yeah, shift to Mission was, was uh, again, another one of those amazing roles and opportunities um, to be able to take a, a team of focused people, um, elite sports people um, that were competing on the world stage. And, and look, I knew sort of in the background um, that for most of those that were at the games, um, this would help shape their lives of, of who they are and, and what they go on to be. Um, because of that experience. I think in terms of preparing that team, it was, you know, and like many teams that you create, you're wanting a great culture. Um, and, you know, that was probably at the forefront of what we were wanting to do and that we were, a, you know, a united group. Um, we we did draw on um, the cultural aspect of our country. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I've always found interesting that, you know, within New Zealand, it's often our culture that divides us, but we're on, when we're away, it's our culture that unites us. You know, we're going into Beijing, um, that can be a little bit different. It's, it's not not being in New Zealand. Um, you know, it's, so the, the, the environment and situation that you're having to adapt to there of, of ensuring that athletes... We've created a place in the village that felt like home. It could have been in Auckland. You know, um, but they happened to be in China. Um, and we supported them with you know, what they needed um, to perform.
2: I remember in the Paralympic Village in London, I don't remember all of the things that were in our little welcome packs, but I do remember there was pineapple lumps and being <laughs> like, oh, pineapple lumps. Um, so I think those little things definitely, definitely make a difference. Yeah, yeah. and it is
0: the little things. You know, it's, it's being tight as a team. You know, we're reliant on each other. And you do what it takes, you just do what it takes to ensure that the athletes have a great experience um, and are able to to perform to the level or hopefully even better than, than what they wanted.
2: Mm. The the sailing is not quite so smooth for everyone still now, you know, getting involved in whatever their local sports club is. What would you say are some of the barriers that people face and what, what um, you know, what can we be doing about it um, to make sure that as many disabled people that want opportunities to get involved in sport can.
0: And it's not always easy for, for youngsters or anybody coming through to, to have allocations in a swimming pool, in a gym, on a track. But I think um, you know, it, it needs to be a multi-pronged approach you know, from, from government, from sports and from society in general. Um, you know, that we have an expectation that you know, no one's left behind, um, that everyone has an opportunity in, in what they choose to do. And I think a, a real um, big part of that is the education at at, at primary school. Um, and I think about the programs, you know, um, we have a program through the IPC of I'm Possible, um, off the word impossible. And it's just wherever you put your, your apostrophe, you know, it's that that belief in in you. And so when they become teenagers, when they become adults, when they run the world, it's no different. You know, that, that's just the norm for them.
2: What sort of change have you seen happen um, to, you know, ensure athletes can perform really well and um, that the Games are a really, I guess, empowering and sort of great place to be?
0: The, the games in China, for example, I think was a real catalyst for change for China. You know, we talk about you know, my upbringing and disability sort of being hidden. Um, you know, in 2008, it's, it was still very hidden in China. Um, not so much now. You know, the, the Chinese successful athletes or athletes, full stop, um, are really showcased and admired. Um, they build specific Paralympic training venues for their athletes. We know there's now in the UK, there's one million more people with a disability than in 2012 that are now in employment. You know, that they, they, they can track and statistically put down to the awareness that was created through having the Paralympic Games in London.
2: Yeah, that's great, because e- even in somewhere that, you know, um, you would expect disability awareness to be higher and it would have started higher but that we still have such a long way to go. Um, I remember myself as well being in London and all the volunteers that were absolutely everywhere I wondered whether there would be, you know, a sense of oh we've had the Olympics and this is the after show. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't at all.
0: You're certainly right around, um, you know, with London and the, the awareness, I think Channel 4 in the UK kicked that campaign off. Um, immediately after the Olympics with a, a campaign advertisement of thanks for the warm-up. Here comes the Paralympic Games. And people flocked to the event and people couldn't get tickets. You know, there were, there were tens of thousands of people in, in the Olympic Park in over-capacity um, just to soak up the atmosphere. Then we went to, to Rio um, and, and again, you know, for all the, the criticism that Rio faced, Um, the the spectators that were coming to the Paralympic Games in Olympic Park was actually higher, on the the weekend days, was higher than the middle week of the Olympic Games. So again, it had a a big impact on Rio in Brazil and Latin America.
2: In the lead up to the Tokyo Games now, um, what is the committee focused on?
0: Um, People with disabilities in Japan are not that visible. Um, Accessibility in Japan is difficult. Um, Accommodation in Tokyo is even harder again and so we're trying to help um, the organising committee influence the city of you know what do they need to be doing in in hotels you know removing a bath out of out of a hotel is an incredibly difficult exercise to do in Tokyo they love having a bath we want a roll in shower Um, and so we're helping try and get that understanding as an aging population, you know, mobility issues. It's not just about, you know, young Paralympians. You know, it's accessibility is parents with push chairs, it's about the elderly and people are living longer. So the legacy of the games is far more wide reaching than just athletes.
2: Yeah. And I think it's also important for people to have the option of doing sports for fun, right? Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. Not everyone's going to go on to, wants to, or has the ability necessarily to go on to elite level. And that's okay. should be doing something
2: though. Yeah. It
0: doesn't have to be sport, you know. It's, it, you've got to be doing something that, that you enjoy.
2: You obviously have a very, very busy life. When you are not working or at
1: International Paralympic Committee meetings, do you have some hobbies that you like to do to kind of chill (laughs) out and (laughs) take your Um, mind off that?
0: (laughs) I think um, what what I love about the situation I have is that I I have a a fantastic job in a corporate organisation within ANZ Um, and I have this almost double amazing life in the International Paralympic Committee and the two are so so different although they complement each other in some ways you know I, I can bring sports governance and sporting experience into banking and I can bring banking and compliance and risk and assessment into sport. You know, I I still get into the water sort of two or three times a week, and that's fairly regular, but that's, you know, discipline to to keep. It's good thinking time. Um, And then if there is downtime, um, I I enjoy sitting on my backside, anything I can do renovation, home maintenance wise, um, in a seated position or lying down, I'll be into that.
2: Cool. If you had some advice for um, your, maybe yourself straight after you got your impairment, can you think of what that might be and why?
0: One door shut, you know, and, and, and with any situation when a door closes behind you, you know, there's, there's a couple of doors in front of you. And A, you've got to choose which one you're going to open, and then you've got to be bold enough to go through it. Um, and I think the message is you know what's happened happened and you can't change the past um, but you can influence and change or you can influence um, and make decisions on where you're going to go next
1: in conversation with duane kale the music is siva by june development and funding thanks to imagine better edited by juliana Machado. visual direction by benjamin brooking produced by Anya Kelly Costello